And our passage this morning is taken from Romans chapter 1. We're going to finish the second half of Romans 1. We'll be in verses 18 through 32 this morning. Something of a well-known passage and a difficult passage even. You'll see as we get to it. Young Christians, young theologians, let's begin with you. One question for you this morning. What is it that makes God angry? Why is he angry? And it's important for us to know that he's not angry all the time. But in this part of the letter from Paul to the church in Rome, Paul's going to tell us why God is angry and what makes him angry. So listen very carefully. This is the gospel of Jesus in the letter of Paul to the church. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. And so men and women and children are without excuse, for although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, They became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they made themselves fools, and they exchanged the glory of God for images resembling mortal man, and birds, and animals, and creeping things. And therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness and evil and covetousness and malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but they give their approval to those who practice them. Lord Jesus, even when we hear your words that sound to us stern Allow us with the ears of faith to hear the notes that are sweet and tender and gentle. And even when we read passages that sound to us unusually hard, give us the ears of faith to hear the anthems of grace. And if you'll do all of this, our faith in you will grow, and we will be glad, and we will give you thanks. We ask it all in the Father and the Son the Spirit. Amen. Would you be seated?
Gilligan's Island is shockingly theological, and yes, I realize what I just said. The sitcom from the 1960s starring Bob Denver, The Zany Misadventures of Seven Castaways, was one long Technicolor sermon and 30-minute segments over 98 episodes. And we know this because the creator of the show admitted it. At the end of his life, Sherwood Schwartz claimed that he had written each of the characters to be an embodiment, an impersonation, a representation of one of the seven deadly sins. So, the professor is pride, and the skipper is anger. And Thurston Howell III is greed. Who else takes a suitcase of money on a three-hour boat ride? And Lovey Howell is the spouse of gluttony. She is covetousness. And Ginger is lust. And Marianne is envy. And Gilligan is sloth. It was not a harmless little show with a laugh track underneath it. It is all incredibly true to life. Here were these personifications of sin. And they were condemned to be eternally trapped in their vices on a deserted island, always in need of rescue, with no means of escape. Sherwood Schwartz was literally writing a version of hell for prime time. And what's even more true to life is that we wouldn't have seen any of this unless the author let us see it. We'd have gone on thinking that being stranded together in brokenness is rather normal. It should feel to us much like home. And if we didn't know any better, we might also say that it seems like Gilligan's Island was pulled right out of this part of the first chapter of Romans. Because... Here we are, walking vices. We are personified sins. So the question is, which sin would you be cast for if somebody were to follow you around with a movie camera? Which of the sins would you embody if somebody followed you to put your life on film? And we're stranded. God has said, you want your sin? I'll let you have it. I'll let you feel the weight of it, and the bulk of it. It's like living on a deserted island and we can't rescue ourselves. Every attempt we make fails and we need to be found and delivered. That's the gospel of the appearing of Jesus on earth to do the work of redeeming and rescuing. In the meantime, we're trapped on the island and we try to make it seem normal. We try to make it feel like home, in spite of this deep, churning discontent. And we wouldn't know any of this without the author peeling back the veil and allowing us to see things as they really are. It's not a new story at all. It's just a story we've stopped listening to. So Paul begins this section of the letter with a discomforting note. God is wrathful. He's able to fill 
all the cosmos with his anger. In fact, if he let his anger fly, it would wipe the universe away and leave no trace. He actually has a more measured way of distributing his wrath among us, and we'll get to that in just a bit. But the first question needs to be put first. Why is he angry? He's angry because we've given away his glory. I love to watch the Antiques Roadshow. These antiques appraisers gather in a convention hall in some city, and the people of that city, the people of that area, dig junk and trinkets and heirlooms and artifacts out of closets and attics and basements, and they bring them into the convention center to have these items valued, to have their worth named and appreciated. There's a lot of junk that people seem to consider should be worth more than it's actually worth. And when the appraisers tell them that what they've brought in has no value at all, you can see the anger rise in them, the disbelief and the resentment. But sometimes, usually on every show, there is someone with a treasure that they've been drastically undervaluing. Like the man who came in with a dress saber, a dress sword, and the dealer told him that based on the markings, it was an officer's sword from the Civil War, and it would easily fetch $35,000 at auction. That was conservative. It would probably go for more, but at the very least, he could count on it bringing in $35,000. Then out of curiosity, the dealer asked the man, so how have you been taking care of this piece? And the man said, I haven't been taking care of it. I've been hacking up watermelons in my backyard. (laughs) And the dealer said, no, no more. This is a national treasure. You put oil on the blade. You put it up. You put it away. No more attacking watermelons with this. I thought the appraiser was going to take it away from the man right there because he wasn't sure the man would be able to treasure it. And that's our story according to Paul. God has given to us His untreasured glory. Now... Let's define glory, or try to anyway. According to the passage, glory is God showing forth His attributes. It's right there at the beginning of verse 20. The invisible attributes of God being shown. It is the unveiling of His character. The shining forth, the shining out of His otherwise invisible character. God is known by what God does. We see who he is in what he does. And if we were to look at the portrait of glory that's most clearly painted for us in Scripture, if we were to go to Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah is lifted into heaven and he sees God for himself before he's sent out to proclaim the good news to his people, if we were to look at that passage, we would see God's glory showing itself in three particular traits. There are more, of course, but these three stand out. God's glory is His holiness. There is this quality about God when we experience Him and we know He is very different from us and He is like us, or more accurately, He has made us like Him. But still, there's something about Him that we don't even begin to approach. 
Or we can talk about His holiness by saying it is His purity. It's so intimidating to see it. Isaiah thinks he's going to unravel. He'll melt in God's presence. The purity of God that's so intimidating, but so intoxicating at the same time. We want more of it for ourselves. Holiness is the first trait. The second one is goodness. In all God gives to us, He is good. Even when He gives to us things that are mysterious and complicated. And I hate to tell you this, but most of the things God gives to you in His goodness will seem to you as mysterious or complicated. But He's being good to you anyway. Holiness, goodness, and the third trait is power. This God can do whatever He wants to do. And what He does is whatever is good and holy. He can do whatever He is pleased to do. And what He does is what is good and holy. That's His glory. Holiness, goodness, power. But we've counted it as a thing of no worth. Isaiah sees this thing that's incomparable and we say it has No value. That is too much God for us, we say. So Moses goes up onto the top of Mount Sinai to get the revealed law of God. And the top of the mountain is covered in lightning and fire and storm. And the people down below at the foot of the mountain say, We don't want a God like that. Aaron, make us a barnyard animal. Make us something soft and cuddly. Something we can understand. Something we don't have to be afraid of. And Paul says, we continue to do the same thing. We make idols out of men and women and birds and animals and creeping things. Glory is too much for us. We don't want glory. It's too expensive. It's too demanding, too hard, too substantive. Glory means we can't control this God. We have to believe Him and follow Him and submit to Him and put our lives in His hands. But His glory is so far beyond us that we'll pawn it off for a fraction of what it's worth and we'll settle for men and women and birds and creepy crawlies as objects of devotion and worship because these things aren't as dangerous as a glorious God. But they're not as good either. Okay, that one's not hard to see. Most of us, in our time, in this part of the world, would scoff at worshiping a carved, formed statue of some creature. But the letter gets into harder territory in the middle of this section, around verses 26 and 27. So let's put the question on the table. Why does God hate gay people? Why is Paul a homophobe? That's the way the question is phrased from these verses. And that's the objection that my non-believing friends want to bring to this passage. That's the reason my neighbors want to complain about this passage. And too often they hear Christians saying that. But that's not at all what Paul is saying. What Paul is saying is... It is not God in His glory who hates humanity and its frailty and its brokenness and its weakness. It's the other way around. The argument of Paul in this section of the letter is humanity in its frailty and weakness and brokenness hates God in His glory. 
It's very important to see that Paul is saying, we have an issue with glory. We want to argue against it and fight against it. We'll do anything we can do to rip it away from our God. We'll take the creation out of his hands and try to force it to submit to us. We'll use it for our pleasures and our purposes. But notice that Paul is thorough in his treatment of sin in this passage. It's not just that we vandalize God's glory with our bodies in verses 26 and 27. We vandalize God's glory with our hearts and our minds and our emotions in verses 29 through 31. Paul gives us this long list. We're filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, and covetousness, and malice, and envy, and murder, and strife, and deceit, and gossip, slander, hatred toward God, insolence, arrogance, boastfulness, invented evil, custom-made evil, tailor-made for our exercise of it, disobedience to parents, foolishness, faithlessness, heartlessness, ruthlessness. Then he spells out the full force of this disregard in verse 32. We know this is against God's nature and being. We know that it's against His decree because it's violently opposed to His nature. We know that it will only bring death to us. But it's too late. We're so completely antagonistic toward God. We don't care. And we keep doing these things. And what's more... We celebrate those who practice these things with us. It always shocked me that my non-Christian friends took delight in trying to bring me into their sin. They acted like they were going to be setting me free by bringing me into their darkness and captivity. There was a glee that they seemed to take in hoping that they could lead me away from what I believe. And the God to whom I belong. And the worship that makes me whole. And there was disappointment and anger and resentment when I withstood. When I said, it's more important for me to belong to the God who created me and saved me. And who keeps me for himself than it is for me to belong to this group and this tribe. But why would they take such pleasure in bringing someone else To join them in their sin. Were they lonely? No. Had plenty of partners with whom to practice their sin. They had plenty of company. Were they trying to somehow validate themselves? Oh, I'm not so bad. Even he's taking part in this with me. No, I don't think they needed validation. They were already proud of their sin. Were they trying to justify themselves? It's normal. Everyone does this kind of thing or something like it. I don't think they were looking for justification. There wasn't any guilt they carried around, at least none that I saw. I think it's exactly what Paul is talking about here. It's de-glorifying God, saying to him, you aren't so strong, and you aren't so wonderful, and you aren't so impressive, and you aren't as good as you say, and we don't need you, and what's more, we hate you, and to show you, we're even going to take what's yours and make it ours. It's a reverse evangelism. 
Everybody does evangelism. Everybody evangelizes to something. It's just that not all of us evangelize to the right thing. So instead of filling the world with God's glory, it's an attempt to snuff it out. So three times in the passage, Paul pointedly says, God gave them up. God gave them over. He let them have their sin. Let them consume it and be consumed by it. And he does it to show us we think we can sail into our sin and then out of our sin again with ease. We treat our sin like it's a pleasure cruise, like it's going to be nothing more than a three-hour tour. And in the end, it leaves us shipwrecked. And God lets us have our island, castaways from His holiness and His knowledge and His presence, and we're our own characters of vice. And we live out our own real-life version of Gilligan's Island. Stranded and unable to rescue ourselves. And Paul says the observable wrath of God is he lets people all around us write themselves out of his glory. He gives them what they're asking for. He gives them their wish and their hope and he takes his glory away from them and he removes it from them. But that's not the whole story. That's only half of it. The, the horror of our sin in the passage, as Paul tells it, is we have suppressed God's glory. We've tried to stifle it and squelch it and smother it. The pain of life is our running away from God's glory, our turning our backs on it, and building an aggressive prejudice, prejudice against it. But the gospel is, God is stubborn for His glory... God is stubborn with His glory, and in His glory, we keep trying to push it away, and He keeps reaching out for us, and He won't let us shut it out altogether. There is judgment that has come into the world, but there is also grace that has come into the world through the stubborn glory of God. In stubborn glory, God the Son took a body... And he was born as a baby in Bethlehem. And he made himself a little bundle of holiness and goodness and power. Everything we read and see in Isaiah 6 was wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a manger. And he was sent into the world so that we would grow in our love for God's glory as we saw glory growing to fullness in him. In stubborn Glory, Jesus nailed himself to the agony of the cross, refusing to give us up to our lusts and our impurities, our broken desires and our passions, refusing to give us all the way over to our darkened hearts and our corrupted minds, refusing to let us face the wrath we deserve, and the judgment we've earned. He threw us out of the way and He threw Himself onto our cross. And He made Himself into the chief hater of God's glory. And all those fearful things died in His body on the cross. And now by faith, all of those fearful things die in you. In stubborn glory... 
Jesus sat upright out of death and he walked out of a tomb. And he wouldn't allow glory to be put silent and still. He wouldn't allow it to be put to rest and mourned and forgotten. You understand what he's doing in the resurrection here? Jesus is saying, glory cannot be buried and I won't let you turn yourselves into glory tombs. The glory of the living God must come to life and rise up in you. It has to spread through your lives and your relationships and your church and your neighborhood and your world. Of course, God is angry with our world and the people in our world. It's because we want to put His glory away forever and never remember it again. It is a just anger on the part of God because His glory is the best part of Him. It's the most beautiful part of Him. It's what He loves best. It's the part of Himself He most wants us to share in and to love best with Him and to be told, no thank you, your your, your perfection isn't good enough for us. No, thank you. Your perfection isn't welcome here. We'll settle on far less. Of course, there is searing divine anger for that wrong and that brokenness. But His glory is stronger than His anger. The good news in the letter is the glory of God is stronger than His anger. And He has ordained it that way. In Jesus, His still-reaching glory has overcome His anger and has won us back to Him, winning back our love to Him in place of our contempt. So in this part of the letter, Paul is arguing entirely in the negative, but he's wanting us to be very positive about God's glory. So he allows us to feel the horror of the absence of God's glory in order for us to feel an urgency and a necessity for his glory to fill our lives. And he's giving to us three things by doing this. So first, Paul wants us to have a spiritual understanding of our world and our neighbors and our loved ones who live in the world. All this pain and all the misery that we see And our world is so overwhelming to us. And we can't make sense of it on a global scale as we look at it all at once. And what's worse is that pain and that misery becomes very close to us. It moves in next door. It inhabits the people that we know and love. That pain and misery comes into our friends and our family members. The people who have not been redeemed by Jesus or claim to have been redeemed by Jesus, but they don't display any of His life in their lives. And we despair over all of it. How do we make sense of this? And Paul says, you have the spiritual answer, you just keep ignoring it. You you know what's happened. Men and women and children suppress God's glory. And they exchange the truth he reveals of himself for lies that they themselves make up. You know what's happening here. He's not letting them do it easily. His glory is too good to be treated this way. But in the meantime, Paul would suggest, you don't just write them off, you pray. Pray 
that God's stubborn glory will break in and break through for them and win them, bring them out of their brokenness to the obedience of faith we heard about last week, to the righteousness of faith we heard about from the first section of this first chapter. In the meantime, pray that God in His stubborn, gracious glory will bring those whom we know and continually inflict themselves with needless misery for suppressing the glory of God. Pray that He'll bring them into the happiness of His loved glory from this section of the letter. Stop wringing your hands, Paul would say. Fold them for a change. Stop wringing your hands. Lift them to heaven for a change and call out to the glorious one to continue to unveil his glory and to bring it into the lives of the people whom we know. Secondly, Paul wants to give us a spiritual understanding of ourselves. We often misappraise ourselves. For this, I think we should look for the places of ugliness in our lives. Not not just the places of suffering, outside suffering that is brought upon us. But maybe the ugliness we're talking about here is our response to the suffering that's given to us for some spiritual reason. And we refuse to accept it and learn from it and grow in it and trust Jesus more. We're talking here about the places where we should have more of Christ in our lives and we simply don't. Those are the places where we continue to fight against God's glory. And the irony is, God has not given us up to our darkened passions and our twisted minds. He has redeemed us, but He does let us taste miniature judgments. Because we keep giving ourselves up to those things. We continue to hand ourselves over to our darkened hearts and twisted minds. So where we are angry and discontent and complaining and joyless and resentful and belligerent and manipulative and critical and controlling and confused because we don't listen to the gospel. And where we are deaf to His gospel because we don't proclaim it to ourselves. I'm shocked that we hear the gospel as frequently as we do And then in the course of our normal lives, we don't proclaim it to ourselves. Or in the grip of broken sexuality or trapped in some shameful form of pain management, which never takes pain away, it only increases the pain. In those places, we are refusing God's glory for some twisted glory of our own. But it only brings hurt. His glory is so stubborn and so lovely, He will never let us be satisfied with anything other than His beauty. Did you hear that, church? Many of you want me to counsel you and give to you something other than His beauty. He won't allow it. He will never let you be satisfied with anything other than His beauty. Many of our incurable pains in life come from The denial that knowing His glory and loving His glory and sharing His glory is the only design there is for our life. 
And if we fill our lives with something else, anything else, it will feel like judgment, even if in the end we're saved from judgment. In the end we may be saved from judgment, but that doesn't mean we might not feel the pains of it in this life. And what Paul is saying to us here is, if you're loved, then don't live like you're judged. If you're loved, live up into the fullness of that love by serving His glory through which He loves you. Why settle for a strained, argumentative, accusing, combating love with the glorious God? Why live in marriage with God the way we live in our marriages on earth? In other words, this God has loved you And now you should value His stubborn glory and thrive in His love. Lastly, Paul wants to give us a spiritual understanding of what God is doing in us. In other words, this is the question, how do I know I'm really loving His glory and I'm not just filled with a bunch of empty talk about it? His glory should make us more beautiful. And it's the kind of beauty we should see in ourselves that we would never choose and we can't conjure it or manufacture it, but it's undeniable. So it has to be from the glorious one. The beauty of God in His glory emphasized in our lives should look beautiful in us. Doesn't it make obvious sense that living closely and openly with the holiness and the goodness and the power of God, is going to continue to attack the ugliness and unbelief in me. And gradually it's going to spill out of me and it's going to reach out and fight against the ugliness in my home and the ugliness on my block and the ugliness in my neighborhood and in my church and in my city. The beauty of God insists on more of itself The beauty of God insists on more redeemed beauty. The glory of God is greater than the glory of Rome or the glory of Dallas or the glory of the darkened self or a collective of darkened selves. And the glory of God does not go away quietly. It wants to spread and it wants to live in you. Skeptics, thank you for being with us this morning and for listening in. Remember that this passage is saying to us that God's wrath is already being revealed in this world. So if you've listened to all of this this morning and you still say, I don't know what glory is, I don't see it, I don't get it, I don't care about it, that's judgment. You're already being judged. You're already being cut off from Him. And if that scares you, Jesus has come to take your judgment and to bring you back into God's glory. So keep looking into Jesus. Keep asking questions of Him. Keep listening to His answers and believe Him as He gives you faith, little by little and step by step. This summer, Jennifer and I were walking on the beach one day and we were picking up shells and I dug one out of the surf and I held it in my palm for Jennifer to see And I said, how about this one? And she said, no, I like shells that are whole. Had beautiful colors. The problem was it was broken, so I threw it back into the waves. And we walked a little bit further, and I found a a 
perfect shell. It was a tight little spiral with, with sharp markings on it. So I held it up in the palm of my hand and I said, how about this one? Does this fit your perfectionist view of the world a little better? Does this fit your non-existent ideal world a little more closely? And she said, yeah, that's about right. Now, I remember another story like that. Paul Settle. Paul was a pastor to many of us back at Park City's Presbyterian Church and is a father to many of us in our denomination. Paul and his wife, Georgia, were walking on the beach. And Georgia was picking up shells. And she said, I sure am glad Jesus loves broken shells. And I think for the full picture, you have to put the two stories together. We are broken shells, and the frightening truth of the passage is we have broken ourselves. But the good news is Jesus loves broken shells. I sure am glad Jesus loves broken shells. And his stubborn glory makes us whole again. His stubborn glory is determined and insistent to make us beautiful again, more beautiful than we ever were before. Broken shells in Jesus, the days ahead of you, are filled with unspeakable beauty by faith. Believe. Amen. Lord, we have given away your glory You have shown it to us so fully and so faithfully. It's too much for us, and so we would rather fill ourselves with easier gods and idols to trust in. And we pray that you would forgive us. And we pray that you would bring us out of the lies that we concoct in an attempt to make our existence easier. Bring us away from all of our brokenness, whether it's broken sexuality or some addiction or some internal broken emotional disposition, some statement and profession of unbelief that does not allow us to say, God is holy, God is good, and God is powerful. And in him I am saved and made whole. Now as we come to the table to eat the bread that Jesus gives and the wine that he pours, we ask that you'll put our sin to death and mortify it and resurrect in us new faith, new belief, new repentance, new forgiveness, new righteousness. Since you're bringing us to the table of Jesus to feed us with the gifts of Jesus, we pray that you'll give to us the hearts of Jesus. And this will be a beauty that will be undeniable. Grant it to us, and we will give you thanks. We ask it all in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.